The RTE Rugby Podcast, sponsored by Canterbury. See the new Irish men and women's rugby jerseys at canterbury.com. And you're welcome to the RTE Rugby Podcast after an eventful Interpro, uh, the first one of the season, I think, at Thoman Park last weekend, it's fair to say, where referees played centre stage. It's not what we want, but we'll talk about it nonetheless. An Ireland squad announced later on this afternoon for the November test as well. We'll try and preempt what Andy Farrell and his team might do, and plenty more besides all in the company of Donald Lennon, Bernard Jackman, and Wes Liddy. You're all welcome, gents. Um, look, I know Birch and Donald and myself were all at Thoman Park, so Wes, I might start with you. Uh, given that you were, um, I guess, watching it uh, from the screen at home, your perception of the game at all, where referees, I think, took centre stage, and Andy Far- Andy Friend is not too happy about uh, a couple of calls that went against Connacht. Yeah, um, I suppose I'd probably just digress slightly from the match for a minute, Hugh, if that's all right. Sure, um, yeah. That, um, I think, for me, the most notable occurrence over the weekend was uh, Keith Earls doing that interview on Friday night on the late late um, and I think probably wouldn't be right to let it go without commenting on it. Okay, so um, just for anyone for anyone who didn't see, um, Keith Earls gave an interview with Ryan Tuberty on the late late show on Friday night where he talked uh, extensively about um, severe depression that he's had to, to suffer with over the years and uh, the treatment that he's been getting ongoing with that and also physically um, an awful lot of, uh, I guess, problems around his breathing, around his liver um, over the last few years when he was playing at the height of uh, his international and Munster rugby career as well that not many people would have been privy to. And he subsequently spoke about it in, in, in papers across the weekend as well. So, yeah, it was, it was, um, it was quite something to hear how, how raw and honest he was about it. Yeah, it's incredible, really, um, <clears throat> for a guy that's still playing, that's still in that vo- environment to come out like that. Um, I actually watched it again last night. My missus works in, in mental health and... I watched it with her last night and yeah, it was quite startling, I thought, and um, very brave. Um, and I suppose <clears throat> he touched on a lot of stuff other than just the bipolar diagnosis. Um, you know, he talked about difficulties had difficulties he had with his own education and feelings around that and, you know, difficulties in his own background growing up. And I suppose... I often wondered about that over the years um, because he was kind of so well mapped uh, on the rugby scene from so young. It was kind of forgotten about, but I did often wonder when he was, you know, 17, 18, going up to Irish schools camps or Irish 20s camps and often kind of the, maybe the lone monster back going up there. Um, I mean, I'd say it was very daunting for a guy from his background at times to go into that environment with, people from a completely different context with completely different aspirations for themselves in life. Just give us a, give us a bit of his background, will you, Wes? You know, for people who don't know, so we grew up in Moirash, obviously, and a lot of Munster fans would know, and indeed Ireland fans would know his, his dad, Jer, as well, who was a bit of a legend for young Munster, but give us an idea of the area where Keith uh, came from. Um, yeah, he grew up in Moirash. I don't think he was, like, he was never dragged into any trouble or anything like that, and he always speaks very fondly of Moirash, and He's right. I think 90% of it would be, um, you know, like anywhere, good people. Um, but, you know, it wasn't without its difficulties, I'm sure. Um, and I think that, I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure it was a very daunting thing for him to go into those environments at times. And I suppose his talent was the equaliser there. But I, th- I think that, that sense of the daunting nature that coupled with the expectation that there was on him, particularly locally from a young age. I remember people talking about him when he was 14, 15, 
before he even went to Munchens when he was still playing with Nessens. Um, and I think that expectation, um, coupled with the fact he was probably a little undersized, uh, coupled with the turmoil he was obviously experiencing mentally, um, and then laterally kind of the health problems his first daughter had, and obviously these injury issues, which I don't know if anyone read the article in the Times on Saturday, but it's really remarkable to to think that he played through that. I mean, just in that context, when you when you combine all that together, to have performed at the level he has for as long as he has um, against that backdrop, um, I think is just remarkable. And um, it's ironic that maybe a guy that a lot of people kind of flagged being, you know, maybe maybe had problems with confidence or needed an arm around the shoulder or whatever. It's ironic that when you hear about the full context, he, he's probably the most uh, resilient and mentally toughest player we've ever come across to, to have the career he's had in that context. Yeah, he's very forthright and very honest, Donald, and very raw about uh, everything that he has gone through, which as, as Wes says, you know, it's, it's unusual <coughs> when a player is still in, in their career. Sometimes you hear these interviews and what players went through um, you know, after they retired, but certainly for, for Keith Earls as well on Friday night, I think it took an awful lot of people by a surprise and, and they were very invested in what he had to say. Absolutely. Well, I, uh, I, I had an inkling about what was coming out in the book uh, a couple of weeks ago only because I, I'm actually doing a Q&A with both Keith and Paul O'Connell tonight. There's a, a big, you'll all remember the Billy Holland, who's, whose daughter passed away sadly two years ago, Emmeline. There's a big golf outing in Adair Manor today, and uh, uh, I'm on the committee along with Paul and Keith, so we're doing a Q&A tonight. So uh, given that I couldn't get a copy of his book in advance, I, I watched the Late Late Show with, with fascination, really. And, uh, you know, speaking to uh, a lot of the Munster players, and certainly uh, the older Munster players who would have been, like Keith Earls made his debut for Munster in 2007. He was on the bench the last time Munster won the Heineken Cup in 2008. So he's been around the scene forever, if you like. But uh, I spoke to uh, two players who have been there all that time. It was only in the last year that they became aware that he was going through these issues. Now, apparently, they, they didn't understand. There were occasions when Keith would just walk out and say, I've had enough of this, I want to retire. And, you know, people just thought, ah, this is Earlsy or whatever. But nobody understood. So you can imagine the turmoil that's going on in his head. Uh, and it's funny, you know, Wes, I think you, you made the point there about, um, you know, the background that he was coming from at a young age. Uh, funny enough, I remember he made his debut for the Irish schoolboys against England in Temple Hill. And we had had a game, uh, I think Con were playing up in Limerick and Des Fitzgerald's son, Luke, Luke, obviously, who we know, was also on that Irish school team. Uh, like I would have known Keith's dad, Ger, pretty well. Um, would have played against him. So I remember racing back from Limerick to get the last 20 minutes of that school's match and going in afterwards, uh, being introduced to Keith. Uh, I, I knew Luke Fitzgerald because he lived in Cork as a young fella, but it, it kind of did cross my mind. Uh, you know, Luke Fitzgerald was boarding in Black Rock. Uh, Keith obviously was, was you know, his own documented upbringing in my Ross. And it must have been daunting for him going into that type of environment. Now, ironically, I know himself and Luke Fitzgerald became absolute great friends over the years of their involvement in the Irish setup. But um, yeah, look, it's, it's, it's amazing. Keith Earls is revered within the Munster squad. Players have told me 
that he is probably the most respected player within the squad. He doesn't say a lot, but when he speaks, people listen. He's always been in the leadership group, but he's not the up, you know, the Paul O'Connell type or the Peter O'Malley type who's out there in front. But he's a very astute judge. You know, even uh, I thought it was quite poignant. Um, again, the point that Wes is alluding to, you know, just, um, uh, you know, that issue around signing the autograph and spelling wishes wrong. Inside in a team room where you're going through sort of up on the whiteboard, the the uh, the lines that people had to run and, you know, a specific move, be it off a, a set play or whatever. And he just couldn't grasp that in the classroom environment. But the minute they went out onto the field and ran through the moves, yeah, that's it. He had it and he was instinctive. Uh, but it's incredible. And again, I suppose one last thing I, I, I think, and it makes sense to me now, having listened to him on the late, late show, uh, I remember over the years chatting to Ronan O'Gara, who was was and is a massive fan of Keith Earls. And, you know, you might read Raj and he'd say, geez, Earls, he did things in training this week that are just incredible, amazing. But then he might go out on a Saturday and, he, you know, he wouldn't, he wouldn't do anything spectacular. And I, I used to make the point to Raj, look, you can see what he does in training, but we have to judge on what we see on a Saturday afternoon in the match. And it actually made sense to me listening to him in on the late late show about you know uh, maybe in training you don't have that anxiety level whereas you're going out into the match and by his own um admission you know he used to get overwhelmed going into some games about the worries about you know could he pull off the move was he making the right defensive call so the, the whole thing fell into play with me in terms of you know you had this relaxed genius in training doing things yeah. that nobody else could do but uh, the anxiety levels are the, the demons, if you like, that were going on in his head, obviously impact on your performance on the field. But I think what he has done is incredible. I think his degree of honesty, um, you know, that, that he's coming out and he's, he's been so open about it. I mean, uh, I think there's a, a massive amount of credit due to him. And I think his book, uh, Fight or Flight, I think it's going to be a must read, really. Yeah, poor old Birch struggled because he, he couldn't produce it on the training ground or he couldn't do it on the pitch as well. So <laughs> amazingly, got a career out of a Birch. He can't even produce it in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> what, about, what can I add to, what can I add to, that, to that from Wesley? I don't look, I, I just, I mean, they've summed up everything about Keith uh, really well. I, I would just go back to Wesley's point. I think, you know, he has, he is probably now the, the, the most mentally strong uh, player who's played for our, for Ireland. Um, and, you know, that's, that's, that's how far we've come with, with a stigma around, you know, um, mental health. But I think what urges coming out is, is phenomenal. And what he's achieved given the, the difficulties he had um, is phenomenal. And, and look, he's still playing. There's still, there's still more to do. Okay. Listen, Birch, let's pick it up if you can on, I don't want to dwell too much on the on the ins and outs of, of uh, last Saturday at Tomo Park because it's been done to death really now. It's Wednesday afternoon. But um, I know Andy Friend has been speaking, uh, which we'll hear from him. He's been speaking uh, this week about uh, what he believes were uh, injustice against Connacht. But your overall impression coming away, as was many leaving the ground at Tomo Park as well, that the referees obviously had a huge role to play in the game. Now, whether you agree or not with the decision about the offside, is up to you. I know the picture is pretty clear as day. I know there have been some attempts to argue that it wasn't offside, given that you know Cloutier then put on Ty Byrne offside and his back foot and his front foot. But it looked it looked to most people like he was offside. But the referees, it's probably fair to say, Andy Friend had a point that Connacht were a little bit let down by the officials on Saturday. Would you agree with that? Uh, look, I think that that 
try should have been examined in um, in more detail. Um, uh, I know there's a narrative coming out now that it, Tyburn wasn't offside because his his front foot was in the air. Um, again, I've been watching rugby a long time. Uh, I've never heard that rule, and I think it's going to be very very hard to for referees to judge that now. So they're not no longer looking at is the player in front. It's actually is his front foot touching the ground, which, you know, and look, rugby is very tricky and it's very complicated. I had a look through the rule book. I can't see the uh, real clarity on that front foot. I mean, the the ramifications for the game, and I'll give you, and people might say this is stupid, but coaches will now look to, if that's proven, no one from our rugby's come out and said he was onside because his front foot was off the ground. But if t- think about a box kick. You know, you could effectively start your second row halfway up the rook who's going to kick chase or your winger kick chase as long as his back foot is in line with the ball and his right foot or his front foot is, is in the air. You could take, you could even have someone hold his jersey to keep him up and, and win that extra meter. So this is the narrative that they, that they want to go down saying um, the rule is the front foot has to be. And equally, if the front foot is in the air, you can make the point that if you have a box kick at the side of a pitch, right, beside the touchline, you can put one of your chasers out over the over the touchline because technically they're not in the field of play. If you're going to use this front foot in the air, yeah. kind of yeah. So look, I think I think it'd be a lot easier just to to actually stick to the what well, certainly for me for the last twenty five years has always taken as being the offside from a kick is you know is he level or behind? Um, you know, if the body was in front, I think that's a lot easier for referees, for touch judges, for fans, for commentators to to go off. But uh, again, like, uh, you know, I think, you know, the referee and, and the TMO are very comfortable that they're right. Um, and this is probably a part of the issue is that, uh, you know, no one is coming out to, from World Rugby or from the head of referees to explain it to us, you know, explain yeah. it to us. Has this... Is this a new um, a new directive? I, I certainly haven't seen it, and maybe I missed it. But it's just going to make yeah. it more complicated. Now, I would say, if you think about the game in general, the game was very, very difficult to referee. Um, and the breakdown, I, 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 don't, I don't think I've covered a game in a while where I, neither team were secure on their own ball. And you know, it was just absolute yeah. chaos at the breakdown. There was a lot of legal turnovers. There was a lot of illegal turnovers. Um, you know, Chris Clute had a field day for at the start of the game. Uh, and I think that just, you know, uh, in a game like that, an Irish derby, the referees are going to miss loads of things. And that's that's because our game is so difficult to referee. And, and I think we all, well, I certainly expect that. You know what I mean? I don't expect the referees to have a perfect game. Um, I just do think, you know, for a TMO decision like that in a, in a, in a tight game where there's potentially something contentious, it is worth taking the time. Now, having said that, I believe the TMOs are under pressure to not jump in. Um, to let the game flow, and I, and I certainly would would be frustrated <coughs> sometimes by how long some TMO decisions are ma- make. But I suppose when I saw it back, uh, you know, on, on the re- on the replay before the try was given, it looked to me like Ty Burns was in front. So I, I think I think for to be cl- to be safer for the TMO's point of view, you stop it, you, you refer it, you go through it line by line, mm. and at least people can understand your your line of toss. Mm. Whereas just to make the decision and give the try. Mm. Certainly, from from a Andy Friend's point of view, I can understand why he's frustrated. And don't like that's I, I, that's that's the exact issue. I mean, yeah. to be fair, Hugh, we were, we were doing the game on commentary, and uh, you can understand a big, this whole issue. I go back to the that second test or whatever it was, first second test in South Africa in the Lions when the game took over two and a quarter hours almost because of intervention of TMOs. The second test, it was it was appalling. 
um, the whole game was stop start. There was no movement in the game whatsoever. So therefore, the pressure comes on then to have less intervention. Hmm. The point that Birch is, is, is making is, is absolutely right from, and you know from a commentary point of view, the laws of the game are so complex. And you could be playing it for 30 or 40 years. I mean, I regularly have to sit down. Uh, Dave McHugh, ex-Ireland referee, I meet him a lot just to sit down and explain uh, it's different interpretation of the same laws even, which is absolutely ridiculous. But you go back to the point here. Andy Friend is 100% correct that that particular try did not get the same forensic examination as the one that was disallowed where uh, Tiernan O'Halloran, the ball went forward out of his hand. And, you know, that was pretty obvious. And again, for me in rugby, nine times out of ten, if it looks offside, it is offside. You know, you had this rule that was there before, when it's a forward pass, a forward pass, when you're taking motion and all this into it, which created more grey areas. Now, uh, at the time, I think they, they got a little sidetracked as to whether Clute grounded the ball and they took that away. But certainly um, on commentary, I don't know if you, I got the impression that the referee was happy that the TMO had reviewed yes. the tight burn. I was just going to say to you, so when we were yes. sitting there, Donald, just, like, just to give you our perspective, so when the, when the try happens, we're commentating over the replays. There's three or four replays. You're doing the, the majority of talking. When the cameras come back, Joey Carberry has the kicking the ball on the kicking tee. He's lining it up. The referee's beside him. And we both assumed they have checked with the TMO. The try has been given. The, the conversion's about to happen. That's what happened from our point of view, right? Absolutely, yeah. But I mean, um, but even... If no, is, is that it, what Birch is saying is that technically because of this law, is because his foot is off the ground, mm. that it was allowed. But had the dialogue taken place between the referee and the TMO, that may have, it would have educated me in terms of, because I wasn't aware of that law. I don't know when this was ever tweaked. As Birch said, it's not in the laws. So therefore, had the TMO and the referee had that conversation, as often happens, and it explains to everybody as to why the try is allowed or isn't allowed or why it's a knock-on or why it isn't a knock-on, then I think you would have had clarity and people would have moved on. But I think, look, Andy Friend, uh, I know the underdog in rugby, I remember years ago when Ireland were struggling, you never got a break from referees because the other team were expected to win. Mm. Um, no, I'm quite sure if you go through over the past number of years, there's probably 50-50 calls that went Connacht's way when they're playing in Galway, and that, that tends to happen. But the bottom line is, uh, I do think in that particular incident uh, that the TMO and the referee had to have the same dialogue that they had for the disallowed Tiernan O'Halloran try. OK, so let's just listen to uh, Andy Friend, because he was speaking to... Uh, RT Sport this week in terms of you know refereeing decisions as he feel that Neil Tracy managed to get a few words with him and this is what he had to say about um, if he felt someone from the URC should have been in contact with him after the game. That's not up to me. So I, I would have liked possibly some explanation, but I, I actually in my own mind I thought you know everyone's normally pretty busy on a Monday Tuesday. Uh, if I haven't heard anything by tomorrow afternoon, I, I might make a few calls. That's something generally that, you know, when there are issues or decisions like that, that there is a bit of back and forth between teams and the league about why something did happen when, you know, if you're looking at it and you can't understand why. Yeah, normally there's a, there is, there's actually a, a quite a healthy working relationship with, with, uh, I mentioned there before, Johnny Lacey, um, you know, who looks after the Irish referees. And, and I feel like we've got a very good working relationship with, with the Irish referees. So, uh, yeah, me calling that out was not a 
was not a direct attack on any individual. It was, certainly wasn't on Chris Busby. I just thought it was the the process, the lack of process that that was that that hadn't hadn't been undertaken. So, um, listen, I'm sure they're going to come back with something for me on that. I had a few other questions too, as I do after every game. Uh, and I think every coach does. You know, there's always things that you just want to get clarity on because you want to make sure that you can deliver the right message back to your team. So um, that's the purpose of doing it. It's not, it's not witch hunting. It's not you know, trying to find fault in, a, in someone else's performance. It's just trying to get clarity on what are the standards because it does change you know, quite rapidly, as we know, in, in the game of rugby. So I said, we, we've got a good working relationship with, uh, with Johnny and the, the Irish referees from a, a URC point of view. I haven't heard anything, and, and I probably doubt I will because I don't think there's anyone in that position. Okay, so that's Andy Friend uh, speaking to Neil Tracy, as I said, uh, on Tuesday. Um, Wes, your, your overall thoughts on this? Like, we're kind of tired done by. Um, do you feel this is an ongoing issue, as Andy Friends has seemed to suggest, that the Connachtists do not get the rub of the green or the bounce of the ball at all when it comes to officials and the poor relation of Irish rugby? Is, is, it that, um, is it that much bias against them, do you think? Oh, um, like the lads are right. He was right in this instance. You know, it should have been checked more rigorously. It wasn't a try. Allegedly, I won't get into feet off the ground or not, but I mean, if, if there's a bigger issue to be pointed at, it seems to be around this issue of there being a, a lack of clarity with referee managers, referee management within the URC. Um, I, I, I don't think, like there's, there's no conspiracy here. Um, I, I don't think claiming we're unlucky every week is really serving anyone. Um, so yeah, they were unfortunate in this case. It happens. It's frustrating. But if there's a takeaway from it to build on for anyone, it seems to be around assessment and management of referees within the competition as a whole. Yeah. I would think. I and mean, this is an ongoing. This is an ongoing issue. We have. We have. Yeah, I mean, like it's funny the narratives that come out after these games. Like, and it's not to be defending Munster or anything. I wasn't particularly impressed with their performance, but you're kind of going. You have people on one hand saying, geez, Connacht were brilliant, they were really unlucky. But then on the other hand, people are saying, well, Munster were really poor. And you're kind of going, well, if, if Connacht were brilliant and they lost the match, then surely Munster were okay as well. So oh, I, I don't think it serves anyone to kind of <clears throat> go down the, the conspiracy route, to be honest. Yeah, and just on a, I don't I don't think Andy Friend comes out every week and says we were unlucky because no. they were poor against the Dragons. He came out and said, "Oh, I think we fell in love with ourselves," or you know. So I think he has accepted. Um, he, he's accepted in the past when they haven't been good enough. So it, this isn't a, a consistent narrative for him. Um, or, so like I I was over in Cardiff, um, round one they lost. Uh, he didn't go after the referee. Um, he accepted their own part in it. They beat the Bulls round two. Round three, they were poor against Dragons. He said it was, you know, mentally didn't get up for themselves. And then in this instance, I think he has a right to question the TMO part of it. Uh, you know, I think that's that's fair, Wes. Um, it is fair, but like just the way you outlined each game there, like the biggest issue for Connacht seems to be consistency. Yeah, well, look at uh, they obviously. I think Cardiff are bad. They were very poor against Dragons, uh, for sure. So uh, that consistency is an issue for them, but. Just because consistency is something he's working on, do you not think he has the right to question a decision he that he feels? No, he's I, hard I, up by? I do think he has the right to to, to question that particular decision one hundred percent. But but I don't think it's helpful to anyone when the wider narrative becomes a kind of hard done by story. 
Yeah, you try and talk to those players who just put in a big shift and like not be prepared to go out on a pedestal for them. I, I think... What was your view on the Sam Arnold yellow card, Birch? Did you think that was a yellow card? I thought it was just a penalty. I said so in commentary yeah. as well. I just thought it was just a penalty. I didn't think it was a yellow card. Yeah, I, I think thought it's... the manner in which... What was strange to me, and again, I don't really seem like I'm picking on TMO here, but I mean, he, he didn't have a great game. And it's been a couple of instances over the last few weeks where he has made some questionable decisions by McNeese. And it was a situation where Chris Busby goes down, the yellow card is potentially flagged or penalty uh, for Sam Arnold's uh, tackle. The former end decided ahead and his, the, the man in which he tackled. Chris Busby goes down to the end of the screen. Um, the team always reviewing it. And Chris Busby says, okay, what have you got? And then the team O'Brien says, well, actually, I'm waiting for you to give your judgment before I say anything. When, when the TMO's job is to literally sit there and forensically analyze in front of the big screens in front of him what he has just seen. And I thought that was bizarre that there was no recommendation for the TMO to the referee to assist him on what the punishment should be. I thought that was not a bizarre no, thing. No, so no, in fairness, I actually think it was, it was yellow. It was it became it was reckless and head contact is is really important. I was shocked. Yeah, sorry, that, that that was the key there. It's because of the head contact. That's what initially yeah. you were looking at a wrapped arm and it wasn't, but once you uh, because he was high coming into the tackle area and there was head contact, that pushed it into the yellow card zone, I think is what you're saying, Bert. Yeah, no, I, I think it was yellow card, but I, I was very interested yeah. in that dialogue because, <clears throat> because you know, it, it, it was unusual in that um, it was basically handing over complete decision or decision-making back to the referee. So I, I, when I heard that view, I immediately thought, have they changed the directive on... Yeah. Of foul play that the that the referee speaks first or something. It was just you know I, I haven't seen it in the top fourteen. I haven't seen it in, in the Premiership. So yeah, it is it is something maybe I I, I definitely need to check it yeah. out. Um, but it was it was unusual in that situation. Okay, but right. do you think? Sorry, just before yeah. we leave it there. I mean, yeah. we've had this is a recurring theme in these provincial interprovincial games. We've had Munster, Leinster, uh, Munster, Connacht. Say Frank Murphy. Oh, you get geez, Frank Murphy played for Connacht. They did somebody else. Frank Murphy played for Munster. Yeah. And there's been controversy in those provincial games, particularly Stephen's Day games over the year, those Munster Leinster games. Has the time come to fly in a referee from Wales for these games? Because people seem to get totally sucked in to the uh, to the narrative of the Irish referee not being able to handle. Well, it. I'll tell you, very interesting. The narrative from Scotland and Wales is that um, we're only getting we're only copping onto this over the last year and a half because of COVID that we've had to be ref by our own referees. Um, they basically said we've known about this for the last five years because we've suffered, <laughs> we've suffered from their errors because they've been over in Scotland or Wales refereeing us, and you've had Welsh and Scots who we haven't obviously been jumping up and down about either. But effectively, mm. I, I think Donald, the reality is COVID has meant they haven't flied in, um, flown in as many outside referees, and we understand why. Uh, so we've we've experienced a lot more in the last twelve months than uh, or eighteen months than we had previously. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. And look, I, look, guys, hopefully it's not going to be an issue like we're going to talk about um, throughout the season, but it certainly was a big focal point of Saturday. Another big focal point of Saturday, Donald, start with you, was uh, the performances of the two tens. So Joey Carberry and Jack Carty. And in the context of Andy Farrell's squad for the November Internationals today, it'll be very interesting to see um, who he picks. Um, he might pick Sexton, Carty and Carberry. He might go for a bit of an outsider like Healy. You know, I mean, it's all in a, a melting pot at the moment, but I'd be very interested to see and who he picks. But in terms of Saturday's performances, Jack Carty eclipsed Joey Carby. There's no question of that. Yeah, well, look, I thought uh, I gave him the man of the match. Um, and, you know, I thought he, he was had a hugely influ influential game over the course of the 80 minutes. Um, look, he's a guy who he's gone from the highs and lows, was brought in for the World Cup squad, 
played in the World Cup, as we know, against Japan, uh, came back, lost confidence. But uh, he seems to be back where he was prior to that. I mean, I have a lot of time for Jack Cartley. His only issue uh, over the past two seasons has been a, a, a lack of consistency from one game to another. There's lapses then within his game. Sometimes his, his performance off the tee in terms of place kicking comes under pressure. I mean, I saw it highlighted. Oh, geez, uh, Connacht lost by two points. He missed a conversion of the try. Mm. Yes, he did. But I'd be more critical of Ulton Delan. I mean, the restart after that, nine times out of ten, Ulton Delan catches that restart. Connacht secure possession. They get out of their 22 and you start there. I mean, nobody seems to focus on the mistakes that happens afterwards. Yeah. And that's where the issue was. But look, I thought Jack Carty, he played flat on the line. Uh, that opening, uh, you know, he's prepared to take the hits. That opening play off the line out that put Mac Hansen through the gap. Um, he was the guy who invited the defences onto him. I thought the quality and the variety of his kicking was excellent. I thought his game management was very good. And look, there's no international coach who judges a performance over 80 minutes. But uh, I, I did think Jack Carty had more of an influence on the game that Joey Carberry had. Yeah. Uh, it'll be interesting, though, for whatever reason. Andy Farrell has never included him in a squad since he's come in, since that World Cup. Um, I mean, you, you, you talk about people knocking Carty because he missed that conversion. Sorry, Billy Burns doesn't kick for Ulster. When John Cooney kicks, or sorry, when John Cooney's in the team, he does the place kicking. Yeah. When uh, Nathan Doak is in there now, and he's taking the place kicking. So therefore, let's say that's not a responsibility that Billy Burns has for Ulster. Yet, yeah. over the past two seasons, he's been in the Irish squad. Yeah, and by the way, I've heard it said that Joey Carberry's goal kicking this season has been brilliant. He was 56% off the tee going into Saturday's game. He was five out of nine. That's what it's So, like, you know, in terms of hammering Jack Carberry for goal kicking, I don't, you know, it, it doesn't quite add up. I mean, Birch, like, you know... I'm very interested to see what the call is around the tens uh, because it's, it's it's been a huge talking point for the la since the World Cup in 2019 and like Jack Carty has kind of slipped into insignificance because of what happened in the Japan game and rightly or wrongly this argument's seriously against you know leaving him out given the talent that he brings you know on occasion probably not often enough but you look at someone like Billy Burns who's been a regular in the Ireland squad and I'm scratching my head saying hang on it's clearly evident to me that Jack Carty is a better footballer than Billy Burns it's, I mean there's no question in my head I don't know what your view is yeah, I, I, I would prefer Jack Carty, to be honest, over, over Billy Burns. Um, and that's nothing against Billy Burns. I think he's, he, he's talented. But I, I, do, I do think Jack has been the scapegoat for, for Japan. And, um, you know, I'd love to see him get another chance. Um, I'd love to see him get another chance in the Irish squad. Uh, you know, we there's still no heir apparent to, to Sexton. We all presumed it was Joey. Uh, it may still be Joey. Um, but, you know, he's, he's played a tail end of last season and he's played three out of four games um this season and it's just not probably not happening for him to be honest now having said that having said that i mean you know ben healy when you look at the right ben healy got you know against the scarlets he was on the front foot um a lot more than joey has been the games that joey's played have have kind of gone against him connor went after him at the breakdown it was wet and windy um you know there was a lot of pressure uh munster couldn't really hit the straps. I mean, they did, he didn't have a Damien Delande or Chris Farrell just to drop the ball off to and get him gain line. So, um, you know, against the, the, the Stormers, 
they went behind. They had to put it up the jumper to win the game, and that's understandable. So, um, that's I agree. We're going to see, see a lot of that first with international rugby. We're going to see New Zealand are going to put it up to us. Argentina are going to put it up to Japan as well. Like Joey, Joey Kirby's not going to have front football at international level over the over the November test. He might on occasion, but yeah. you know, like you want to see him step up to the mark when things are, are going against him and actually like, grab the game by the scope of the neck. And I guess that that is a concern, isn't it? No, it is a concern for sure. It is a concern, and. Um, you know he'll he'll feel that himself. He'll feel that he's not, um, you know, making the kind of impact that he's been, you know, uh, expected of him and, and expects of himself. So it is it is a challenge. But I mean, let's be honest. Uh, he, he still is a very talented uh, player that we need to we need to nurture and mind and, and get him into um, into the right place. Like it's still it's still interesting. I mean, if you speak if you listen to Stuart Lancaster and Leinster's opinion, they 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 were adamant he was a fullback. They were adamant he was a fullback, yeah. and uh, that's where his future lay. Um, and it was Joe. Joe really felt he was, you know, the next ten, and and that's why obviously the, the move to Munster happened. So, you know, one of them proved right. I, I think it's too early to say, um, but you know, um, if Healy keeps performing, um, you know, do, do Munster look? Do Munster look at playing ten man rugby using his massive, accurate boot? Kicking goals from halfway, which you know we know in, in, in Europe in Europe can be very effective because let's be honest, their mall their mall is is probably up there the best in Europe at the moment. Um and and you then use Joey as a as a fullback or as a, or as an impact player off the bench. That's the that's the question that okay, Johan's not going to admit it, but you can be sure that's what they're thinking at the moment. Well, I tell you, Wes, if you were to if you were to if you were to force someone to make it, if you're asking me right now who's right, Lancaster or Munster or Joe Schmidt, I'd say Stuart Lancaster's right because Carberry just hasn't hasn't delivered when he's even had a run of games now. And people are saying it's his confidence, and it might be his confidence, or you know, maybe the injury is still a bit of a hangover from that. But certainly, he 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 doesn't look comfortable out there in that ten jersey, or certainly not to the level that we hoped he might. And it is still early days. I get that. But we can't wait forever. Ireland can't wait forever, I mean. And, and Andy Farrell can't wait forever. No, but you, like, I'd agree with Bert in that because our resources in this country are as such limited that there is a bit of a responsibility to try and nurture him back to that because he has done it before. Um, as far as him and Carty goes, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious that if you take the block of games so far this season, Carty's in better form. Um, equally, as Donald said, he does struggle with consistency. And sometimes the fellow's a very good player at provincial level and, and not an international player. I'm not saying that's the case with Jack Carty, but it's possible. Um, they're obviously basing that judgment, ha having not selected him in any squad, on something they've seen from him previously in camp. So I, I would imagine both will be selected. And I presume the feeling is that, yeah, Carty's in better form, but Joey's ceiling is maybe a little higher and all going well. And that, as, as often probably happens, that we ignore when we talk about selection, what they do on the training ground will decide a lot of it, who gets the nod. Mm, it's interesting, Donald. Look, yeah, there's, there's a load of different arguments here. I mean, look, <laughs> I, I think... But that's exactly... But that's... Look, Wes is right. I mean, we talk about the squad, and sometimes I think talking about what squad Andy Farrell is going to pick is a waste of time, because normally for these, he'll pick between 35 or 40 players. No, if you're left out of the 40... Things yeah. aren't looking so good for you. But the yeah. bottom line is, you bring them in, you assess their form, you assess their fitness, um, you have an opportunity to sit down with the likes of a Joey Carberry, for argument's sake. You just see where is he from a physical and, and, and just in terms of his confidence. 
And you learn an awful lot during that period. I think because of COVID anyway, they, they do tend to bring in a lot of players and keep them in that bubble for the duration of the, let's say, the, the November International Series. So um, personally, look, I, I think uh, Jack Carty has deserved a place in that national squad. Um, but to be interesting to see if Andy Farrell agrees with us. What about Simon Zebo, Donald? Um, you know, again, he's been playing on the wing exclusively since he returned from Ras- or from France. Um, obviously, you know, there have been question marks over his uh, fitness levels compared to other Irish players, and we know that the French go about their um, physical fitness a little bit differently to the Irish clubs. Um, should he be playing at full back? Should he be involved in this November series? What's your view on Simon Zebo so far? His return. I'd make the exact same point in relation to Zebo as I just did with Carty. I see no reason why you wouldn't bring him into a forty-man squad. Assess his fitness. Is he fit? Is he keen? Is he is he mentally tuned in? I mean, the bottom line is uh, he played really well that first outing we saw him. He uh, had a, a, a good break in the opening couple of minutes of the game against Connacht. I don't think he touched the ball for the remaining seventy-five minutes of the game. Um, but I think if you're Andy Farrell. You either make a decision now, uh, look, what is he? Is he 30 or 31? Do you see him as part of your World Cup squad? What can he contribute? He, he plays full back. He plays on the wing. Uh, he is an infectious character that can impact on a squad in a positive way. But do you see him as part of your World Cup squad? Or, um, you know, are you looking to, to some of the younger players? Yeah. Uh, like the Ethan McElroy's for I'm not saying he'd be coming in, but he's a player I must say that I've been impressed with at 20s level, has done well for Ulster. Could he be a World Cup player in two years' time? Possibly. Um, so they're the type of decision. You see Eddie Jones, for example. Eddie Jones has seemed to have put a line through Mako, uh, Billy Bonapola, Jimmy yeah. George. George yeah. Ford is yeah. George Ford is eating up the premiership. Leicester are top of the pile, five out of five, but he's just discarded him. Yeah. So who you just don't know what's going on in terms of the head of the coach. You have to do your long-term planning. We're always giving out if he doesn't use these opportunities to bring in younger players. Um, so therefore, look, those calls have to be made. Do you know what? I wouldn't be surprised if Zebo didn't make the cut. I put it that way to you. Okay. And just finally, Birch, I wanted to mention Nick Timney as well because he's been getting rave reviews, uh, particularly around Ulster, which you can understand, but he's scoring tries for fun. He seems to put on a lot of size and muscle over the last... Um, 18 months or so, um, stood out for me. The Leinster-Ulster game in the Rainbow Cup last season, he was phenomenal. I thought, you know, this guy's really going to come on. But he's, he's even kicked on since then. I mean, he, he's really put his hand up for selection in terms of an Irish um, cap this November, isn't he? Yeah, well, he got he was involved in the summer, did well. Yeah. Um, I agree with you. He His form has been excellent. And it looks like, you know, with Van der Mer, um, or, or Vermeulen coming, they, okay. they see him as a seven. Um, and I think he's, you know, he's he's a ball carrier um, and a very explosive one, and he's a link player. Probably Jackal Tress, you know, it's probably the area that he maybe is a little bit behind someone like, you know, Josh Rander Fleer. But um, yeah, he's a guy I, I could see, um, I could see getting into the squad, and, and he would be in there on form. Uh, but the back row, I mean, um, the back row competition is is ridiculous. It's, it's for me, it's our it's our strongest um, strongest line in, in the team. Okay. All well, right. I just looking there, sorry, just based on that. I mean, when you consider CJ Stander retired last year at 30 or 31 years of age, was he? He's gone. Uh, number eight, you know, uh, you've got to pick a number eight between Jack Conan, Kane and Doris, Gavin Coombs, and that's excluding the likes of Max Deegan, who's been out injury 
uh, yeah. or has been out injured. Now, Jack Conan, I just thought the game on Saturday, he's a player I think the Lions tour may bring him on in leaps and bounds. I thought he was outstanding for Leinster on Saturday. Uh, so that puts the likes of a Caelan Doris then into the battle for uh, the sixth jersey. But then uh, you're up against Peter Romani. Uh, Ty Byrne, is he going to be played in the second row or the back row? Yeah. Coombs could play six. Certainly, Doris has played six in the past. I mean, it's an embarrassment of riches. Um, and, and just the last two, I thought... Can any of them uh, play fly half, Dole? <laughs> well, if they could, wouldn't it be great? But uh, no, I tell you, the, the other one I thought from, you know, Lions, play, Lions tours can, you know, they can set a player back or they can elevate him to a different level. I thought Ronan Kelleher on Saturday was just another... Like, he didn't play on the Lions tour. He was brought out because of the COVID bubble and the event of something happening to the other hookers. But he shadowed the likes of uh, Ken Owens, Luke Cohen-Dickey, Jamie George, trained with them every day. And he just struck me from that performance the last that this guy has gone up to another level. Uh, his level of confidence, even, I thought, is conditioning. Everything about him. It's almost now, look, I have more stature. I'm a lion. And then behind him, you've Dan Sheehan. Like... Uh, so, again, in that hooking berth, an area that we were a little concerned about when Rory Best uh, retired. And to be fair, I thought Herring played very well for Ulster as well. So it's an embarrassment of riches in some positions and then worries surrounding the 10 area, uh, as we've discussed. So, um, But look, it's always us, isn't it? It's always us. And to end on a high note, Wes, the cookies are still flying at Young Munster. Everyone's certainties now for the All-Ireland League Division 1A. You must be absolutely delighted. Yeah, going well. Early days, as Donald like to point out, probably. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, no, I spoke to, I was speaking to one of the management team on Friday, just wishing them well, and they were very wary of Terenure. They rated them highly. Mm. Um, just going by the WhatsApp messages that were flying around a few months ago, I think they thought they were going to come down and walk all over us, but sure. That's a folly as old as time, really, at this stage, I suppose. So um, it is, but it's glad to get the win there. It's a great way to see that there does seem to be no more of a link now between the club game and the professionals. You have more players uh, being allowed back to their um, to their clubs, if you like. Uh, and and just long may that continue. Hopefully, you know, this it's, grows. It's good that the two provincial coaches, Leo and Johan, name-checked it this week. And obviously, there is guys going back, but... And look, the league's been down its luck for so long, you'll take any break it gets. But mm. I suppose if, if they are going to be using it now, you know, maybe you'd like to see a more formal plan around how that's going to be, how that's going to manifest, um, what the access to players uh, in terms of training even is, how, how you make them a full part of a squad rather than random guys dipping in and out week to week. So you'd hope it's there's a- an opportunity there to be seized. Yeah, look, and it's it's a needs it's a needs must thing for the provinces at the moment because they don't have A games. But I just hope they don't forget the clubs. You know, when the A teams come back and there is more travel, you know, I think they take into consideration the value that those players got when they went back to their respective All Ireland League uh, clubs, and that it won't be forgotten when they get an opportunity to go and play against the Cornish Pirates on a Wednesday yeah. night that nobody has any interest in. Ah, stop. Um, I'm stop. So. Uh, and look, I you know I've seen I've seen your monsters Clantarf and Lansdowne this year in the games, all three games. The quality of the games. Look, just for a neutral person to go and look, I'm beating the drum of the All Ireland League for a long, long time. The quality of those games is uh, well worth going to. It's a great day out. It's a great social atmosphere around the clubs, 
and it just needs more encouragement. Um, yeah. You know, it's a good day out. Absolutely. And don't write off Con, as Donald would say, young Munster, Clontarf and Lansdowne. They've had their hardest three games first. So Donald Lennon <laughs> is not the president jinx that everybody thinks he is at Cork Con. He's given a bit of time. Don't be very much your banner saying Lennon out down at Temple Hill. Give him a few weeks. Lads, uh, I, I, I haven't actually played in any of the matches, you realise that. <laughs> Doesn't matter. I still get to slag you anyway. It's the, it's the one few sticks <laughs> I get to beat you with. Um, but thanks to Donald, to Bernard and to Wes for your company this week. Andy Farrell's squad is out. We'll dissect it all next week. Plus the game as well to come this weekend. We have Ulster against Connacht uh, coming up this weekend as well for one to look out for. Right, lads, talk to you next week. Thanks, man. The RTE Rugby Podcast, sponsored by Canterbury. See the new Irish men and women's rugby jerseys at canterbury.com.